Turn with me this morning to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. Grateful for each of the elders and the way they help lead worship each week. That's a great blessing uh, to hear them taking part in the service and uh, leading us into those times of worship. They all do a fantastic job, and I am grateful. Again, choir will gather after the message for just a few, or after the service for just a few minutes back in the choir room. So if you can stick around for that, uh, that would be good. It'll be a brief meeting. And again, we are thankful for all the work that is going on in the church, these renovations. So even if it displaces us one more time for a meal, really thankful for how God uh, has provided. And if you brought food, uh, you could always grab someone here uh, at church and say, hey, do you want to come with us and, and we'll combine our food or and go to our house? Or there are a few rooms in the back uh, if you want to. We're, we're happy to open up our home. Oh, wonderful. All right. That's that's very gracious. Thank you. Okay. She has food and space. That's what you need to eat. All right. Wonderful. Thank you, brother. All right. So see the Russells if you want to go uh, join them, bring your food to their house and eat. That's, that's a wonderful provision. So thank you. All right. So Romans chapter 10 this morning is our focus. And listen as I read verses 14 through 21. Romans chapter 10, beginning at verse 14. The scriptures say, How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. But I ask, did they not hear? Of course they did. Their voice has gone out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Again, I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you envious by those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. And Isaiah boldly says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. But concerning Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Amen. That's the ending of the reading, and uh, we give thanks for the word of the Lord. Let me pray and ask for God to open our eyes. Father in heaven, again, we thank you so much for the word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, the living word, and the scriptures that he has given, and the Holy Spirit that opens our eyes. So we bless you. You're the great God. You're the sovereign God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you're the God we long to know. We, we, we open the word, we come to church, we want to know you, Lord. So give us that knowledge of you. Be that burning fire within our souls. You think of the day of Pentecost where you granted tongues of fire, the sound of rushing wind, the powerful descending Holy Spirit. Well, may that spirit be at work today. And may he speak powerfully. And pray that in knowing your word, we would know your presence. And follow your ways and live in your light. Our souls would be consumed with longing for your ordinances at all times. 
And we pray these things through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, today's passage shines like a bright spot in the middle of Romans 9 through 10. And maybe you think, wait, did you read the same passage I did? I heard a lot about unbelief. Well, follow me here. There's a lot of focus in Romans 9 and 10 on Israel's unbelief. And as we work through this passage, as we've gone through these two chapters, maybe week after week you've started to feel the weight of Paul's lament, his broken heart over the state of his fellow countrymen. And as we said, when when we think about Israel's unbelief, that's not just an academic question. That can cause Christians to wonder, okay, if Israel got off track, What does that say about the power of the gospel for believers? And maybe some of you, when you think about the state of the church, you may ask questions like this. For example, I've had many conversations with you over the years, and some even recently. There's been concern expressed about trends regarding religion in our country that we've seen over the past 20 years or so, a decreasing rate of those who profess to believe in God an increasing rate of those who have no religious affiliation or no confession of belief. Several of you have also shared with me uh, recent surveys that have uh, tried to measure doctrinal faithfulness among evangelicals, and, and they've seen lower rates of adherence to traditional evangelical beliefs uh, than normally seen. That's caused concern. What is the evangelical church believing? Interestingly, those same surveys have caused concern in other sectors because while they show a lower rate of agreement on fundamental doctrines, they show a higher rate of agreement on morals. And you say, oh, that's good. At least we got that right. Well, some take that as a good sign. Others look at that and say, okay, low doctrinal knowledge, high moral agreement. What's really holding evangelicalism together? Is this a church movement and the work of God? Is this the gospel or is something else? driving these rates of agreement. So whatever side you come at it from, when you look at the state of the church or the state of religion, those questions force us to ask, hey, what is Christianity all about? Once again, what is God doing in his world? And today's passage answers those questions. As Paul once again considers Israel's unbelief and the gospel's effect, Paul speaks to those kinds of questions. And while granted, he focuses on unbelief because he's trying to answer that question, his statements are supported, they're undergirded by a strong confidence in what the gospel actually accomplishes. So I want us to give our attention to this passage because it shows us what the gospel accomplishes in us. And Paul highlights three accomplishments today. So first, the gospel rescues our souls. Paul concluded the previous section, last week's passage, with this resounding assurance, verse 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But that declaration now causes him to ask, okay, what are the conditions that must be met in order for someone to call on the name of the Lord? And he announces these declarations through a series of questions. 
How can they believe, excuse me, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? Notice Paul works his way backwards through the normal progression that takes place when people are brought to faith in Jesus and submission to his lordship. Essentially, a messenger is sent. The sent messenger makes a proclamation. An audience hears the message. The hearer believes the message and in response calls on the name of the Lord. Very basic, it's an easy to follow sequence. You've probably often heard these verses read when discussing missions. But what I want us to see, that works as a good blueprint, but what I want to see is Paul's point is not merely to say, okay, here's your blueprint for missions. Paul wants to highlight the finished work that makes that blueprint possible. And I say that because of the end of verse 15, where Paul cites Isaiah 52.7. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring Good news. In Isaiah 52, if you want to make this your afternoon reading today, God addresses people, his people, Israel, who have been wrecked and ruined by oppression. Now, that's a judgment that they brought on themselves. It was because of their unbelief and their disobedience. And yet God promises, I will rescue my defeated people. And in the very verse that Paul cites, the inhabitants of this city, this besieged, oppressed city, they're on the walls watching, and they finally see the Lord coming to deliver them. This Lord has won a decisive victory, and he sends a messenger to the city with good news, gospel, of that deliverance. And the inhabitants of the city see the messenger and they say, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, Your God reigns. You see, the feet represent the person bringing the good news because the feet carry the messenger to their destination. Their feet are beautiful because their message is beautiful. It's like a cup of cold water to a thirsty person, and it comes at just the right time. And what is that message? It's the message of an accomplished salvation. The reign of God has begun. And that rain delivers you from sin and Satan and brings peace between God and humanity. The rescue, the salvation that God promised has finally been accomplished. And that long night is over. That exile is over. And God is sending his messengers. And God himself, in many ways, is the messenger that comes so that you can hear that good news. And that encourages our faith in two ways. First, God has accomplished salvation. The exile is over. You are invited home. Salvation has come. And that salvation is available for free. And that salvation is at 
work in you even now. Please don't ever think of it as, okay, that happened back then, and so now I've got this new moral code, and I live my life. Salvation is at work in you now. The next time you have a dispute, and you feel that temptation, I will be right here. I will be, I will be heard in this argument, and you say, you know what, I don't have to be right. That is God at work in you. The next time things go crazy in your home or at work and you feel your temperature rising, you're going to raise your voice to, to be the loudest person in the room, and you say, no, I'm not going to do it that way. That is salvation at work in you. God has accomplished it. He's given the Spirit to you, and that salvation is ongoing. And that encourages our faith. And second, we're encouraged in our faith because we look at the stance that God takes towards rebels, and it is a stance of love. Again, what Israel brought it on themselves, friends. They knew better. And they brought ruin and rebellion and, and wreckage on themselves. And how does God come to their city? As a messenger of good news. As a messenger saying, that time of punishment is over. And those messengers come with beautiful feet. Why? Because they come with good news. They don't come with the news of condemnation. They come with the news of forgiveness and love. It reminds me of the father in the famous parable of the prodigal son. You ever just think, what would that be like if that was your son coming home after all he had done? Of all the things you'd be tempted to say to him. And he comes home with a bad apology and doesn't even get it out. And all the dad can say is, I'm just glad you're home. That is the position that God has taken towards his rebellious creatures, to watch and wait for them to return. And that informs us of the posture then that we take towards those who don't believe the good news. And this gives us encouragement. And so Paul doesn't mince words in the passage. He's, he's up front about Israel's unbelief. But he can also celebrate and accomplish salvation, a gospel that truly rescues our souls. So let's come to the second idea. The gospel comforts our doubts. In verse 16, Paul raises this issue of Israel's unbelief. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? So as we considered at the very beginning of Romans 9. At this point in salvation history, only a few Jews, again, broadly speaking, have embraced Jesus as the Messiah. And the word the NIV translates as accepted, it could be rendered as obeyed. They have disobeyed the good news. But rather than being stunned at this point, knocked off his horse, so to speak, Paul again sees this as the fulfillment of Israel's scriptures. And once again, he appeals to the Old Testament, this time, to the well-known servant song of Isaiah 53. And the opening verse of that song, which declares, Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now notice how close this citation is to the previous one in verse 15. So verse 15 cited, Isaiah 52, 7, the declaration of the end of Israel's exile. Now, verse 16 cites Isaiah 53, 1. So, so just a small bit of verses after the previous citation. But according to the prophet's words now, it seems that many Israelites are rejecting 
the good news. So God has come to deliver them. He sent the, the messenger with beautiful feet, but the people aren't embracing their deliverance. Why not? If you're in a besieged city, why wouldn't you welcome the good news that you're being set free? Well, maybe because of how God was setting them free. Let me explain. Think back to what we said about the branch a few weeks ago. So Israel is a mighty tree, but God's going to chop down that tree. Now he'll leave a stump. He'll leave a remnant, and from that tree, from that stump, will grow a branch. And that little branch, that little sprig that that we always cut down, right, when we're tending our yard because they're annoying, that little branch, that little sprig, that will accomplish the people's salvation. And that salvation will be powerful. It will be worldwide. But you can see if God's going to do it through a little branch, through a little sprig, that's going to go against Israel's expectations. You expect this messenger to come over the mountains with the tanks that he's bringing in the heavy, heavy artillery. But the, but the savior says, I'm not going to come as the mighty warrior. I'm going to come as a suffering servant. And I'm not going to come over the mountain and eliminate those powers. I'm going to submit to them in suffering. And by suffering, I will subvert the world's order and bring in my salvation. And you think of Philippians 2. He humbled himself unto death, and then God highly exalted him. That's not how the Romans thought. That's not how the Greeks and their gods thought. That is completely counter to all the cultures informing Israel and the various nations in that day. But Jesus says, I'm coming truly to fulfill the scriptures, but I'm riding humbly on a donkey. And as Isaiah 53 goes on to detail, I come to suffer unto death, even at the hands of the people I came to save. And that was a salvation that God was already acting to bring about hundreds of years before Jesus. That God would rescue Israel from exile and bring them home. But when they got home, things were never as glorious as they had been before. And people stumbled. Where are the prophet's promises? And when Jesus appeared, promising, yes, my kingdom will be a tree. This tree is going to fill the earth, but not before it's first cut down. Well, they continued to stumble. That was hard to believe. And so you say, okay, well, how does that encourage us about the power of the gospel? Well, on the one hand, it comforts us once again to know this is how God has designed his plan. God is going to work through unbelief in order to save many Gentiles. But that's not Paul's only point. His point isn't merely to say, okay, this was pre-planned. His point is to say, despite so much rejection, the gospel still works powerfully. And let me explain why I say that. Isaiah 53, which begins with the servant's rejection, ends on a note of triumph. Isaiah 53, 11 reads, After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. The servant will suffer, but God will vindicate him and give him success. And I think that's what informs Paul as he writes verse 17, the next verse. Consequently, 
Faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. No, not all the Israelites believe the good news. Nevertheless, faith comes from hearing the message about Christ. In other words, despite unbelief, this message still powerfully works. And so Paul's point, it's not just to say, okay, here's the formula. This is how faith works. It's to celebrate accomplishment. God's work of salvation in Christ and the power of that message to produce faith. And so friends, church, take heart in the power of the gospel. Proclaiming the gospel is a means God uses to bring people to faith in Christ. Living out the life of the gospel is a message as well that God uses to bring people to faith in Christ. Paul says the word about Christ. And that's the exact phrase Paul uses here. It's powerful. It works. Now, it's the only message that works. So other messages don't have power. So a message that is about morals alone does not have power. A message that is about church attendance doesn't have power. A message that is about politics is not a powerful message. Those messages don't produce Christians. But the word about Christ does. The good news about your Savior does. It produces faith. And furthermore, friends... The word about Christ comforts you, comfort to your soul, who you are, when your faith is weak, when you're wrestling with doubt, when you are tempted and tried, the pure water of the message about Christ, of the word of God, the word that focuses on Christ, brings comfort to souls because it produces faith. So the gospel comforts our doubts. And lastly then, The gospel supplies our mission. So for these last verses, let me tell you first Paul's overall point. And then we'll see how Paul develops that idea and what it means for us. Paul asks and answers a question at the beginning of verse 18. But I ask, did they not hear? Of course they did. Now, Paul's purpose, beginning back in chapter 9, verse 30... And going to the end of chapter 10 is to demonstrate Israel's culpability for their unbelief. So on the one hand, you've got God's sovereign plan. That's most of Romans 9. But the rest of Romans 9 and all of Romans 10 is Israel's rebellion. Paul just sets those out there side by side to explain why things have happened the way they have. We're in the section that focuses on Israel's rejection of the gospel. And so maybe in light of all that Paul has said in the passage today, here's how God brings about salvation. The messengers are sent and the people hear. Maybe someone would say, well, perhaps Israel's problem is that they simply haven't heard. And if the only time you've heard these verses is in missionary presentations, you might be surprised at Paul's answer. He asks, have they heard? He answers, of course they've heard. 
And then he goes on in the rest of the passage to use the Old Testament to prove they've heard and they should have been prepared by their scriptures to embrace the good news about Jesus. So let's see how Paul proves that point with these Old Testament citations. And of course, his first citation is the hardest to make sense of. At the end of verse 18, he cites Psalm 19.4. Their voice has gone out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. Now, if you're familiar with Psalm 19.4, what's the problem here? In Psalm 19, the verse Paul cites refers to God's glory revealed in creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hand. And that voice goes out into all the earth. So how does Paul say, okay, creation reveals God's glory, and so that means that Israel has heard the gospel. How do those two work together? Well, it's very possible that Paul is simply using the language of the Bible to express his point about the gospel. I remember when I was younger, my dad, he might have been teaching me to change my oil. I don't know what he was teaching me. But I wasn't getting it, and he said, I have many things to say to you, but you can't bear them yet. That's a phrase of Jesus's. Now, he was not saying, I'm like Jesus, and you can't handle, uh, you know, the spiritual truth. But he was saying, you're just not ready for what I am trying to tell you. Okay, is Paul doing that? He's just trying to make a point that the gospel has gone out, like the way God's glory and creation goes out, and people have heard uh, that, and that's the end of it. That that works. There's no need to make it more complicated than it has to be. I'll say that explanation leaves me feeling a little less than satisfied because it doesn't seem to carry a lot of authority with it. You can't just tack Bible words onto things and have them say what you want to say. I can't help but thinking, if Paul is thinking along the lines Jesus was, when he argued from God's words at the burning bush to the reality of the resurrection, and Jesus' thinking was this, if God has made a covenant with his people, if he's the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, that means he is working to undo the damage to creation caused by sin. And that means that God is going to undo the one thing he specifically mentioned when he told Adam and Eve, don't eat the forbidden fruit. He said, on the day you'll do that, you'll die. So if God has made a covenant to reverse that curse, that means reversing death. And that means resurrection. And Israel should have known that. If there's a covenant, there will be resurrection. So maybe, just maybe, Paul reasons that the good news of Jesus, it doesn't merely go out into the world like God's voice in creation, but that the good news in Jesus accomplishes God's purposes for creation. And so Israel should have known from their scriptures and they should have known from their covenants that God would bring about salvation by raising Jesus from the dead. And they don't, it does, the voice doesn't need to go and everybody actually hear it. The scriptures have been telling them for year after year after year. One author puts it like this. With the resurrection of Jesus, 
A silent but powerful message ran like an earthquake through the whole created order. The message that corruption and death had been overthrown and new creation launched upon the world. Clearly, Paul believed that the gospel message concerning Jesus was the fulfillment, not the overthrow, of the Creator's plan for His creation and of His continuing close involvement with it. Paul can cite creation language because Jesus' resurrection is fulfilling the creation purpose. And so Paul goes on to say, again, I ask, did Israel not understand? Okay, maybe they heard, but they didn't understand. Again, his answer is yes, they understood. Why? Because Moses says, I will make you envious by those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. Now Paul cites Deuteronomy thirty-two twenty-one, And again, this passage warns Israel, if you refuse to listen to me, if you make me jealous... By adopting gods that aren't gods, then I'll make you jealous by adopting a people that aren't my people. A people different from my traditional people. And Paul's point there is to say, see, your scriptures told you. God's purpose would include the Gentiles. So when you see it, when you see Gentiles streaming into the kingdom, you should believe in what God is doing. You should believe that this is the work of God through Jesus. And Paul therefore concludes today's passage by driving that point home from Isaiah. So he cited the Psalms, the writings. He cited the law, Deuteronomy. Now he cites the prophets. So the whole Old Testament bears witness to this. I will make you envious by those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. Again, first citation from the original context in Isaiah, God is saying, all right, Israel, in the future, I'll restore you. Paul applies it to the Gentiles. But as we've seen throughout Romans often, God is expanding his definition of what it means to be an Israelite. So they're Israelites indeed, because they have faith. And according to the second and final citation, he will do it among those who weren't even seeking him to begin with. Which brings everything full circle back to where we began in Romans 9, 30 to 31. Israel is culpable for their unbelief because they're failing to seek God the way he has revealed himself. So what then does that mean for us as a people of God? That's a little heavy, all that use of the Old Testament. What's what's the takeaway for us as the church today? It's, It's very simple. God is doing through us what he has always been doing through his people, using them as the means to bring his good news of salvation to the world. That was Israel's commission in the Old Testament. Be my particular people, and you'll be a kingdom of priests. A priest mediates God's knowledge through you, through Abraham. Blessing will come to the world. Now, are they fulfilling that vocation now? No, but God is working through his Israel, through his people, who once were not a people, to bring his light to the world. And it's not just through missionaries, friends. It's through all of God's people. I know it's easy to read in verse 15 there, those who are sent, and think of that as a vocation. 
But Peter says to all of God's people, you are the chosen people, the royal priesthood, so that you can declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. We are all declarers. We are all, by our life and by our words, showing something. That's why Paul says in Ephesians, Church, you're the fullness of Christ's presence in the world. The hands and feet of Jesus, as others say. The embodiment of Jesus in the world. And so that's our takeaway. Just as the Father sent the Son, and the Father and the Son send the Spirit, so the triune God sends us into the world as his witnesses. And we have that privilege this week of reflecting Jesus to others. Reflecting him where we live, where we work, and where we go for our recreation. And it's still entirely appropriate to, to invite people to church, but people don't always want to come. We're one option among many for people to do on a Sunday morning. But you all live somewhere, you all work somewhere, you all recreate somewhere, and we can all go and be the presence of Jesus in those places. And the way we speak and the way we act, it bears witness to Jesus. The way we cheer for our children or our grandchildren bears witness to Jesus. The way you might take a few moments to spend with someone in need can bear witness to Jesus. And so as the people of God, this gospel, it supplies our mission. And because of the faithfulness of Christ, the gospel accomplishes much in us. So let's give thanks. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for Jesus the Lord and the promise of Romans that by his lordship he calls the nations to obey the faith. We we bow humbly before you as the Lord. We thank you for your graciousness. We thank you for the power of the gospel, that it is the power of God unto salvation, your forgiveness of our many sins, your powerful work among us to make us like our Savior. So thank you for all his many mercies, mercies that that go with us wherever we are, whatever our age, whatever our station, mercies that are new every morning, mercies that supply your presence, mercies that drive us in our work. And we thank you so much for the grace of the gospel. And we pray these things. Go Go with your people this week. May we know that love and grace. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.